The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNEW presents New Focus on Wealth with certified financial planner Chad Burton. Drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome back into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. I've got a guess I'm excited to have on. We have Brian Dowsch. He is with T. Rowe Price. He's a portfolio specialist in U.S. Equity Division. He's a member of the Global Natural Resource Equity, U.S. Mid-Cap, and Small Cap Growth Equity Funds. Um, Let's see, you've been in the business since 1997. You've been with T. Rowe Price since 1998. So you've had quite a long career with uh, T. Rowe Price. Is that right, Brian? Yeah, that's right. It's um, you know the primary home in my working career, but it's it's certainly been a great experience. So, so when you're part of each of those funds like that, tell us what your day to day looks like. What do you start looking at first thing in the morning? Yeah, you know, given that it's a pretty wide array of strategies, um, you know, making sure that I'm involved with. Uh, company meetings of companies that we're investing in, kind of following the research uh, that that the teams are are working on, and really thinking about um, how we're shaping the portfolios and being able to communicate that to our clients. So, in in the healthcare space, which is one that we didn't specifically allude to, but I've been involved with that one pretty much from the start of my career at T Row, um, having done some work covering biotech and pharmaceutical companies, and and now kind of representing the strategies to clients as well too. So, very near and dear to my heart. I got to say, that's got to be one of the most exciting sectors to me because you have science, healthcare, technology all coming together right now. And I think the stuff that we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is just going to blow our minds. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's it's funny because when I started in the business, you know, this was just when human genome sciences was getting ready to sequence the human genome, which happened in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, everybody was really excited. They were like, this is great. You know, we, we're going to know everything we need to know about human biology and be able to develop all these customized medicines. Um, and, you know, we felt that there would be kind of a, a panacea, so to speak. And we've seen some of that, but I think the truth is there, there hasn't been as much customization as people would have expected. And part of it was that we just didn't really have the technology and tools to be able to do that. You know, much like the internet had been around a long time, but it wasn't until, you know, we all had our mobile devices and stuff like that. They could really unlock the power of it. And I think that's the point at which we're in today in the healthcare space, uh, just with the amount of uh, technology that's been deployed around uh, sort of lowering the cost of, of sequencing and being able to, you know, sort of further research and development efforts and develop more customized medicines. So when it comes to that sequencing, what we don't need to get to maybe individual companies unless you want to tell a story, but what are what are some of the things you're most excited about? Is it that we're going to live longer, healthier lives as a result of all this, or is it cure diseases or a little bit of both? I think a little bit of both. I mean, the the challenge, of course, has been making sure that we had the you know correct um, knowledge of human biology and, and how... Um, you know, drugs should be targeted in order to sort of, uh, you know, fight certain disease areas, uh, to which I, I think overall the standard of care, we think will be a lot better across different um, areas with having 
more targeted medicines, you know, the challenge often winds up being that uh, you can't exactly isolate, you know, what the what the problem gene is or the problem protein is. So you're sort of developing a therapy that you're kind of hoping, um, you know, covers a lot of ground in the treatment of the disease. But if you can be far more targeted at it, you know, the outcomes should be better. Like you say, the quality of life should be better for people. Longevity is as well being a key aspect. But, you know, thinking about the progress that we can make on curing cancers, um, kind of making dramatic improvements in diseases like Alzheimer's, diabetes, things of the sort, uh, we think is, is really compelling. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've seen so many retirement plans being in this business since I was 19 for 26 years. So many retirement plans would be decimated by Alzheimer's and dementia. Even with, mm-hmm. within my own family, my grandmother spent eight years in a memory care facility. Um, so solving things like that would be amazing, right? And I guess we're, we're kind of at the start of that. So yeah. what, what are maybe some other things in the healthcare world that you're excited about before, besides the mapping? Yeah, um, so, so that, that's a, an important area where um, you know, the life sciences tools uh, space has grown in terms of our strategy on the healthcare side. Um, I'd say broadly speaking, in, in therapeutics developments, there's a lot of innovation that's occurring there. So to give you guys an idea, we saw 81 biotech IPOs last year. And the typical pace over the last decade or so has been maybe 40 or 45. So obviously a pretty significant amount of new company formation and a lot of capital that's come into the industry, both for new companies, but also for financing of existing companies. Um, and so there's a, a plethora of companies in the therapeutic space that we think look very interesting that we've been investing pretty heavily behind. Um, some other areas I think are worth highlighting as well. As you think about um, you know, diagnostics and, and testing, uh, that's actually one of the things that COVID shined a pretty bright light on is the fact that in some areas, you know, there, there just haven't hasn't been maybe as much consistent focus on developing diagnostics and testing for you know certain diseases. Infectious disease is kind of notoriously uh, true in that in that dimension because you you'll inevitably get some you know super bugs that come up from time to time. Obviously, COVID was kind of a novel um, uh, virus you know that hadn't been in humans before and, and created a a pandemic. Um, but I, but I think being able to have like more consistent ability to develop testing sort of quickly that's efficacious and can be distributed in a mass scale, I think COVID showed how important that is and how far behind we were in the initial phases that it took a while to get through. So diagnostics and testing is definitely an area that we continue to focus on. And we could talk about it in a little bit more detail as well, but um, like early stage cancer screening and detection, I think is... Um, a growing area. We, we see a lot of it, like kind of in smaller private companies. We probably can't go too far down in the weeds on, but um, ultimately, if, if you can detect the cancer, you know, before a, a tumor persists, a, a lot of the problem is by the time people realize there's a problem, if there's a tumor or some, you know, some growth and it's, you know, detected and it's stage three, stage four, and there's not a whole lot that the doctors can do for people in that situation. So imagine if you could detect it very early on, you know, a very early stage, the treatment outcomes could be dramatically better. Gotcha. Well, let's go back and talk a little bit about it because it's it's interesting to, to look at, so far we've had positive results in the S&P 500 for the year, mm-hmm. but healthcare is one of four sectors that's actually down for the year. Yeah, when I look at a couple of different places like 
Strategus, um, we've got over 12% increase in earnings expectations for 2021. FactSet mm-hmm. has over 12% earnings expectations. Why the underperformance in mm-hmm. the healthcare sector so far this year? Is it fear of regulation? What, what's going on? I think, you know, part of it is uh, recognizing just how strongly uh, many of these companies had performed, you know, in the teeth of the pandemic, of course, where you had investors that were saying, okay, well, we, we recognize there's a problem here and there's going to be vaccines that are developed and treatments that are developed to fight COVID and tests and et cetera. So a lot of these companies were up, you know, a breathtaking amount, right? Like hundreds of percent over the context of the last year. So to some degree, there's, there's maybe a... Um, you know, somewhat of a normalization as far as those businesses go. And I think investors are sort of rightfully trying to sort out, you know, how for those companies that have developed treatments for COVID, uh, how enduring is that business going to be? You know, basically, are we going to eradicate COVID and then we're not going to need to sell COVID vaccines anymore or COVID tests? We, we don't think that's the answer. Actually, we think COVID becomes basically like flu, which is um, an endemic rather than a pandemic, meaning that we live with it and there's, you know, kind of a tail to these businesses. But I, I think that's, you know, a little aspect of what's going on in the healthcare space. And I think also as, you know, the vaccines have hit and are now coming to the market and people are getting them, uh, hopefully we're getting to a point where we can, you know, more persistently kind of get the economy reopened. There's also been seemingly an investment mind shift of saying, well, you know, now it's, um, a sort of a, a reopening type of trade. So there's been a lot of emphasis more toward uh, cyclical areas of the economy that have done particularly well. And you know, maybe healthcare is just kind of taking a breather. I, I think to your question on regulations, that is it, naturally an area of, of question, especially like when you get the changeover in administration, uh, you know, so the Biden administration and the question of, you know, what, how are they going to treat pharmaceutical right. industry and managed care, et cetera. I think we actually feel pretty good about the outlook for regulation in the healthcare space. Um, you know, a lot of the problems in terms of drug pricing that was a, a big deal in the 2016 election have kind of gotten sorted out. Much better self-policing there. Uh, either managed care space is something that was very much in the headlines when, uh, you know, it, it wasn't clear whether there was going to be a, a single payer system, you know, kind of Medicare for all, which was being proposed by some Democrats, although not Biden. You, you know, I think there's there's that risk has been taken off the table, you could say, for the you know private healthcare industry as well, too. So I think things seem reasonably steady in terms of the regulatory landscape for healthcare. And I think it's more just sort of the market cycle uh, issues that seem to be cropping up for healthcare in the short term. Well, it's interesting because if we go back to more of that focus on the Affordable Care Act or the Ob- Obamacare, mm-hmm. do you th- that is more of a non-event in this first year of the administration is what you're saying? Is that, that fair? Yeah, I think it's um, at, at least for the, for the managed care companies, the healthcare insurance companies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the interesting thing is, so these stocks have gotten hit really hard, you know, companies like United Healthcare, Anthem, you know, these are sizable positions in our portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, obviously people have been worried that if there was some kind of draconian situation that their business would be uh, really impacted by it. So with kind of the removal of that type of risk, you know, we actually think you have an outlook for, you know, double, probably low double digit growth very consistently per year over the course of the next three or five years. And these stocks trade at multiples that are very attractive relative to the market overall. So I think the risk adjusted 
performance potential for those companies looks quite strong and you know they're sizable positions in our portfolio. Gotcha. Well, let's, let's talk about those companies for, for a minute um, because you mm-hmm. have, you mentioned United Healthcare. And that's a stock that I've owned for quite a while. So mm-hmm. I don't care if it's down for a little bit in a year when it, the returns have yeah. been phenomenal, mm-hmm. right? I think I bought that mm-hmm. originally back when they announced they were going to get into Brazil or something like that. that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, so can't, I love that, those returns. Um, that's That's the managed care. Then you've got yeah. The medical devices you've got, like the mm-hmm. the supplies, like McKesson, then you've got the biotechs. How yep. do you break down healthcare in your mind? Mm. Which which is there anything that I'm missing right now? Yeah, the I think you've covered most of the big areas. You know, the way that we tend to think about it in in our approach in, in investing in healthcare, we kind of think of it as you know roughly half of the space is more therapeutics oriented. So that would be the biotechs and the pharma companies. You know, we, we tend to have bigger weights in the biotechs because we think they're a bit of a more pure play way to play the innovation than, say, you know, a larger pharmaceutical company that might have a $40 billion revenue base that takes a lot to kind of move the needle. But they're still very important companies around the you know, research and development efforts and commercializing drugs. Uh, but the biotechs clearly uh, will get bigger, you know, bigger impact from a you know, billion-dollar-plus type of drug because they're much smaller companies. And then, you know, we kind of think of the other half of the healthcare landscape as companies that are helping to improve the efficiency and delivery of care. So managed care like United Health would be a good example. Obviously, they're helping to lower costs in the system. They're helping to, you know, sort out uh, utilization issues, uh, medical products and devices companies, medical technology companies, I think would be part of that as well, too, as you alluded to. You know, the some of the better ideas that we find in that space are actually and companies that are helping to improve uh, sort of treatment outcomes, you know, not in the case of a therapeutic, but uh, like Intuitive Surgical, which is the premier company in medical robotics is a great example, um, you know, sort of improving the efficacy of procedures, you know, through their uh, technology and and robotics would be an example. And I think the final thing I would say, which kind of like bridges the gap almost between those two is the life sciences tool space. Um, And, in part, they help with you know research and development uh, efforts. So some of the sequencing stuff that we were talking about that would be a life sciences company that that's really helping to you know run massive amounts of experiments to determine you know what the right compound is that a company should take to the clinic that you know can ideally target the disease. But then also they've got um, a lot of work that they're doing on diagnostics and testing, and you know some of the. Um, probably most attractive stories in, in the diagnostics and testing space are actually in life sciences companies like a Thermo Fisher Scientific that, you know, is a much smaller company than some of the larger competitors, but they made a COVID test that was really um, effective and they were able to scale it up very quickly and manufacture it. They were outperforming competitors of theirs that were two or three times the size of them. And speaking of that, in terms of the testing, distributing the testing and then distributing the vaccines, mm-hmm. are we going to see essentially healthcare companies become logistic companies because the mm-hmm. rollout of this stuff was a huge part of it, right? I mean, how, how, how that was a big yeah. part of figuring it out. Yeah, you're right. You know, certainly for a situation like this, I guess the question is, will, will we have that um, acute of in a situation, a situation in the future, I think is probably an open question. But yes, the, you know, the companies that were able to figure out the logistics end of things and, and do it more quickly um, were certainly benefited by that. And, and part of that was 
recognizing that the, the different vaccines utilize different technologies. So they had different needs in the logistics standpoint, right? The messenger RNA vaccines like the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, you know, they need to be stored at really cold temperatures and, and you know, transported that way as well, too. So that creates a whole other you know, logistics challenge that, that had to be overcome versus you know, other vaccines that don't need to be, you know, can be stored at room temperature. So um, I, I guess we don't really see the pharma companies, you know, maybe making a heavy investment in logistics, but recognizing that for something like kind of a mass uh, vaccination, that they have to be able to sort of pull the right levers. That's right. With um, what happened under the Trump administration to try to push this vaccine forward, is there an estimate on how far ahead we got on this research? I mean, did we jump three, five years ahead on this new style of vaccine? Yeah, it's it's fascinating because, you know, so when, when all of this happened, we, we've got a lot of relationships, obviously, with company management teams and people in the medical community. And as, as we were talking to heads of vaccine developments at you know, large multinational uh, pharmaceutical companies, the, the feedback was very consistent. You know, these were people that have been in the business for 30, 40 years. And they said, you know, to properly develop a vaccine, you, you would expect it to take you 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. from all the research and development and the trials, et cetera, and being able to get it ready to be approved and, and ultimately distributed. So when you consider the fact that it was what, you know, eight or 10 months in terms of getting a vaccine out the door for COVID with the messenger RNA technology, um, in some ways, that allowed the companies to be able to move faster, you know, just because of the technology itself. They were able to, um, you know, kind of dual track some things. So the FDA was working with the companies to say, hey, we'll let you do these two things in combination rather than everything having to be done in stepwise fashion. So there was actually a lot of collaboration between industry, government, medical community to, um, you know, really make this or help us get to the market as quickly as possible. But I, I think, you know, eight to 10 months is probably beyond what any of us would have thought was realistic. You know, I think going in, we were saying, hey, if it's if it's anything inside of two years, like that would be a heroic victory. So eight to 10 months was was pretty significant. And it's it was a combination of everything, right? It was the companies, it was the medical community, it was, you know, the government kind of working together. Got it. Okay. Can I ask you a personal question about the vaccine? Mm-hmm. Have you had sure. it? Mm-hmm. I have not, you know, but given my age and not having any um, any issues, any comorbidities, I'm kind of like at the back of the line. But sure. But um, I'm so which, I'm which one would you get? The time comes. <laughs> which one would you get uh, if you had a preference? Well, yeah. So I think it's going to be what they give me is, is what I'm going to get <laughs> when the time comes. But um, you know, I'm. I, I mean, they're they're all good. Obviously, people are focused on the fact that you know, like the messenger RNA vaccines have super high efficacy, right? Like 95% plus. And for all intents and purposes, you know, they're 100% effective. Uh, but of course, we know there's mutations, so there's there's nuances to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the the beauty of that technology is that if you know if we're finding that the vaccines as initially constructed you know, aren't as effective as they need to be against the mutations, you know, the variants like UK or, um, you know, South Africa and stuff like that, they can, they can make tweaks. It might take a month or two, but I, I think being able to have that flexibility obviously makes that vaccine very attractive to be able to titrate it to whatever the, uh, the mutation is at the time. But gotcha. I would take any one of them. <laughs> what, 
Okay, so how is it different, that, that technology? How do you explain how it's different from a normal vaccine or even a flu shot? Because there's a lot mm. of people out there that are like, I'm not getting it no matter what. I've got, yeah, I've got, <laughs> I've got my mom who's next week gets her second round, right? She's yeah. ready to go. And then I've got friends that are like, there's no way I'm getting it. And <laughs> unless, unless I have to get it in order to travel. And because right. they're just, they're kind of scared of the new technology or don't even understand that it's a new technology. So how do you, how do you speak to those people in that? Or just outside yeah. of the research that you've done? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think obviously in any time there's a, a new technology, um, you know, people naturally will be uh, concerned, right. To understand like, okay, what's the, we, you know, there's gotta be a trade-off somewhere, right. There's gotta be some kind of issue to get this sort of efficacy. And and that's actually something that we've looked very closely at too to make sure we understand the the safety data and the safety profile of the vaccines and, and they are very very clean. So I think we we feel good about things from the safety angle for both the new vaccines, but then the older technologies, um, which you know flu vaccine that technology has been around a long time. You know, there's a couple of vaccines for COVID that are utilizing that same technology. They're one shot. It's um, you know pretty pretty easy to deal with as as far as you know, being a patient, and actually the um, the efficacy rates there are better than flu. So the flu vaccine is only fifty percent effective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but yet obviously most people take it because they're like, hey, the chances are if I get it, it, it'll be less severe than if I didn't have the vaccine. And it's the same idea with COVID. So the the suggestion I always have for people that are sort of on the fence, you know, obviously it's a personal decision, and people need to make the decision with their doctor based on all of their factors, um, but. You know, I think taking the vaccine, recognizing the safety profiles are very good across a variety of different technologies that have been used. There's kind of like three primary technologies, and, and they're all they've all proven to be pretty safe. Um, you know, I think it's worth recognizing that you could potentially meaningfully lower your chance of if you get the virus somehow. You know, your hospitalization rate would potentially be far lower. Your um, chance of death would be far lower as well, too. And I, you know, my, my doctor kind of described it to me in an interesting way too. He said, you know, it's, I, he's not an alarmist or anything like that when it comes to, um, to viruses, but he said, you know, it's, if, if you don't, if you can avoid getting COVID, you're better off not doing it because we don't really know like the longer term effects. We know that COVID can affect every organ in the body. We've seen people that are having heart complications with it. And in some cases they've overcome COVID, but then they're dying of a heart issue down the road that was caused by COVID. Um, you know, when you lose your sense of taste and smell, it's because COVID is affecting the brain. We don't really know the long-term ramifications for that. So when I think about those sorts of things, you know, and, and getting the virus, which, you know, you will provide natural immunity to the virus. But it, from my standpoint, it seems like, why not, you know, give it a shot with the vaccine to at least sort of help put yourself in, in as good a position as you can, recognizing that the safety profiles are very good. Yeah, especially if it reduces the risk of, of potentially spreading mm-hmm. it to other people. But the more I look into in terms yeah. of how it, it's it's the protein angle of it versus injecting the virus into the body, which is what people think about vaccines, mm-hmm. it's totally yes. different, right? It's it's not the same thing. Um, so yeah. if if that's the case and it is safe and it helps it, you know, you may think that you're healthy and you're if you get it, it's mm-hmm. a non-event. Um, almost positive I had it. I keep forgetting, I keep putting off getting tested for the antibodies. I was in Japan when uh, I was in Tokyo, when Wuhan shut down 
And we had just come from Mount Fuji surrounded by Chinese tourists. And about a week after I got home, I got really sick. Not, I just couldn't move for like 24 hours. I mean, usually I can work through a cold. This one, I couldn't even pick up my phone and look at it. And then I was fine. And then the rest of the office got sick. So we're all pretty sure we had it. Um, yeah. But then there's other people like my, my just mentioned my mom, her, her, her neighbor all of a sudden went into almost kidney failure after he got it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just don't know. It, it, it's, it's tough. Yeah. But I think people need to, the, they, they think about the injecting vaccines and the virus into mm-hmm. their body versus how this actually works. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass or the wait. I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass. The will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiradopass.com. So that's interesting. We kind of got sidetracked on all that. Let's go back to talking about the Russell 2000 because as my listeners know, Mm -hmm. love small cap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a weird time of large caps outperforming small caps until this year with the Russell 2000 up 15%. Um, so those that listen to me are happy, I think, this year so far. <laughs> but when I look at the Russell, uh, you know, I've been leaning towards more managed funds versus indexes, mm-hmm. like the T. Rowe Price Midcap, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is, is that I look at the Russell and 33% of the companies don't make money. And a lot of those are biotechs. Yeah. And a lot of those are going to be you know, maybe one in 10 actually make it, right? Right. So mm-hmm. to me, there's tons of IPOs. There's a speculation bubble that I haven't seen since 1999. I mean, mm-hmm. Brian, I don't, I don't know about you, but I've got people that I hadn't talked to since high school or junior high asking me about Facebook and GameStop on uh, and Bitcoin on Facebook, which I can't answer those questions on social media. <laughs> so that's why I ignore you all. Um, the The... The speculation bubble is real, yet the growth in small cap is real. So, some of the P yeah. ratios in small cap growth are kind of astronomical. I mean, how do you manage mid and small cap growth right now with these valuations? Yeah, it's very challenging. So, um, I work with the um, the New Horizons Fund, which is our flagship small cap growth portfolio, and then make up growth fund as well too. And um, you know the like you say, the speculation that we see in, in certain parts of the market, um, you know, those pockets of technology that are, you know, super highly priced. It's, you know, anything cloud-related, software, IT services, companies. A lot of these stocks, we, we were actually just looking at this um, a couple of days ago. If you look at the 10 largest SaaS companies, software as a service, so that would be software and IT services, Mm-hmm. In the Russell Midcap growth, it's they trade at thirty times price to sales multiples. Not that's not a price to earnings multiple. That's a price sales multiple. Price These sales. stocks are trading at yeah, they're like eighty times plus <laughs> price to earnings multiples. So it's a lot of. Well, that's growth fine that's if embedded. you have seventy percent revenue growth that's going to last for the next <laughs> right. five years. But that's exactly right. That's what you knows? have to do. Yeah, or said differently, like they have to grow the revenues at thirty percent a year for the next ten years to grow into those multiples. And there's just you know, to grow into the current multiple. Yeah, just yeah. to grow into it. It's like, you know, Microsoft has done it. Amazon's done it. Google's done it. But obviously, they, they don't grow in trees, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we've tried to be very careful with that, you know, really aggressive growth part of the market. And there are some companies that are fabulous businesses that we own, right? Like DocuSign's a name that we've got big position in. And, and we think, you know, actually, they're, 
their growth should be strong for a while. Obviously, the multiple is high too. But DocuSign has changed you, our world. I mean, our, yeah. our you know we used to spend twelve hundred dollars a month on our UPS bills just from sending paperwork back and forth because we didn't trust the U.S. mail system. It wasn't secure yeah. enough, and we wanted signatures. And then we went all DocuSign and paperless, and you know it saves twelve hundred dollars a month minus the, the cost of our DocuSign. Clients yeah. love it. It's much more secure. I mean, that is a that's a game changer for for our industry, for the healthcare industry, for the mortgage industry. Like I love those those you know game changing technologies that are out there, the mm-hmm. disruptors that are out there. Is there any other ones that you mm-hmm. can think of that you're excited about on on disruption? Yeah, well, and and the truth is, like, so what what will happen to maybe get back to your other question too about the multiples? Yeah, what will happen is that the the market struggles to price in exponential growth, like you know, a DocuSign or Mm -hmm. a Twilio or an Okta or Proofpoint, which is, you know, like kind of security software as well. So what what winds up happening is these stocks usually tend to look pretty expensive on, you know, next 12 months earnings. But the question is, what do you think they can do over a three to five year type of stretch? And then, you know, is today's price, um, you know, reasonable relative to that growth trajectory? And I think that's, that's where there's opportunity if if you're able to, you know, put the time in, do the work, have kind of the extensive research efforts that we do to try to sort those companies out. I think that's that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Gotcha. And that makes sense. I mean, so don't get me wrong, I'm talking about nineteen ninety-nine and and you know, being in the business in nineteen ninety-nine, I had my seventy year old clients that were up double digit complaining why I didn't have them in enough web.com you know, web van type stocks. And I'm like, because they have no revenue. That's why I don't have you. <laughs> and so there was a speculation bubble there and there was a bit of a stock market bubble. I mean, the valuations of the NASDAQ and even the S&P were ridiculous, right? It's not like that now. It's like there's a speculation bubble, but there's still a lot of fairly priced stocks. So it's a little bit different, but I'm just having so many people asking me, where should I set up my day trading account? Or what are you doing in Robinhood? And that that's why it's it's got to be a time where we're moving into more of a stock pickers market for the small and mid cap yeah. area versus I want to buy them all of the Russell 2000. I don't want to buy all 2000 of those stocks. I really don't. Um, so yeah, it is, it is. How do you, uh, have you had to trim more positions so far this year than, than ever before as a result of the speculation or are you just adding? Yeah. Um, so especially heading into later last year, as, as a lot of these stocks have done really well, you know, we were certainly pretty active in trimming back on names that had done very well and, and repositioning just into other areas where we thought, um, you know, maybe the prices were a little bit more reasonable relative to the longer term growth. So there's obviously pockets of consumer and industrials and business services uh, that that have gotten hit pretty hard near term because of the pandemic, and obviously the stocks have come way down as a result. But once you get on the other side of the pandemic and the economy is kind of you know back with a normal head of steam, these businesses will return to growth. So we we've done some of that in the portfolio, you know, kind of trimming back some of the names that have done really well where the multiples have gotten high, and maybe repositioning into really good growth companies whose growth just got disrupted by the pandemic, right? That's a lot of what we've been doing in recent months. So like travel and leisure and you know, some of the industrial arena as well, too, would be examples. I was going to say, because most of the small cap value stuff, and I know you're on the growth side, mm-hmm. but the small cap values were adding last year to industrials and later in the year, financials, especially in the regional banks, which there's not a lot of revenue growth the way that I see it, but 
the price to book, price to sales, super cheap in those areas. Are you starting to see those in the growth funds as well? Or is that still kind of in the small cap value and mid cap value arena? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's probably more value. Like in, in our case, we really haven't done much on the small and mid-sized regional banks. The, the challenge is oftentimes as a growth investor, as you alluded to, it can be hard to, to get the growth that you want, right? Relative to other areas in the market. Mm-hmm. And, and th- those companies do exist and, and we do, you know, look for them and we try to find them and, and we've actually cycled out of some names that have done really well. But the problem is um, there are attractive franchises that you get like a larger uh, company that looks at that and says, hey, you know, I'd like to I'd like to build my business in that area. And I could just buy this company and, and sort of let them do their thing and, and take advantage of the, um, you know, the profits that they're generating. So that that's the issue that we wind up having as a growth investor is a lot of times like the best the best companies, the best assets wind up getting acquired over time by larger entities in the you know, financial services arena. Yeah, especially those value plays that might be, you know, a, a bigger company can go in and turn it around and buy it really cheap. Yeah. And so that's right. that's kind of the, the the growth versus value investor. You know, it, what I don't like is the value investor that's simply looking at PE and and mm-hmm. and price to book without a way. Okay, if it it might be cheap for a reason, right? Right. And. So can you, as a growth investor, can you speak to that at all? Because we've, this is the longest period of time where growth has outperformed value. And yeah. is it because the value metrics are broken? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that may be because of how you value tech and biotech, like technology and how you value the intellectual property. Is mm-hmm. the value, especially when it comes to indexes, broken? Is the value metrics broken? Yeah, and it's a really interesting question because different index providers um, have a have like different methodologies. You know, some of them sort of view value to growth as as a continuum, and and I think those methodologies are challenging, right? Because it's like, well, if the company has low priced earnings, low price to book, it's a value stock. If it has mm-hmm. you know high priced earnings, high price to book, and high long term um, EPS growth rates, you know, in consensus, then it's a growth stock. But the truth is, if you look at companies that have like really high embedded growth expectations and traded high multiples, they usually underperform in the long term because they, you know, if they struggle to um, keep that growth going, then ultimately the multiple has to bleed down. So um, I, I think from our perspective, like as, as growth investors, we really try to make sure that we're understanding the fundamentals of the business that we're owning, you know, what, how what do we think the economic mode is around the business? You know, does the business model make sense to us? Is the company allocating capital well within their business? Are they doing it in a profitable way? You know, those are the kinds of things that are examples of the, the quality of the underlying business and the management team that, that should allow you to generate, you know, consistent growth over time. So when you have opportunities like a, you know, a bear market or a crisis of some sort, you know, usually you sort of look for those good franchises that wind up going on sale and, and kind of building the positions there. But I think to your question around like the, you know, it's been such a long period of outperformance by growth versus value. Uh, some of that has been, you know, surely because of the construction of the indices that might, um, you know, sort of increase the heavier cyclicality in the value indices. And it, given that I work on our natural resources team too, we've yeah, you know, we think that we've been in the commodity bear market since 2011. We think it's likely to persist as productivity keeps going up and the cost curves keep falling in 
energy and other commodity areas. So I think the value indices, the way a lot of them are constructed is that they wind up um, you know, having a higher concentration in some of these uh, sectors where maybe they're more secularly challenged for a period of time. And I think that's kind of exacerbated the growth versus value differential. Gotcha. Well, now that you mentioned the natural resources, can I, can I keep you for a few more minutes and, and talk to you? Yeah, about absolutely. That? Uh, one of the biggest questions that investors have is how much inflation are we going to see? We've got, we had a massive amount of stimulus last year. Almost, I mean, most sectors of the economy are doing really, really well. It's kind of the, the COVID stuff that's still lagging airlines, yeah. travel, leisure, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I doubt we'll ever see business travel return to where it ever was. Um, you know, just probably 10 years, maybe who knows, but there's all this money coming into the system still. And it's in, and so there's all this thoughts of inflation and commodities have been in a bear market because there hasn't been a lot of inflation. Is that, do you think that's turning around in terms of commodities as a hedge against inflation? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because there's, there's, Two aspects to that question. So the the strategy that that we have um, is called the the New Era Fund, which is actually the oldest natural resources strategy of its kind back to 1969. And it was, you know, the design of it was basically to provide a hedge against inflation, right? Like from a commodities or hard assets viewpoint. Um, and it commodities do tend to react, right, to what's happening in the economy and, and tend to be a driver of inflation. So. Um, over the longer term, that's that's definitely the case. Mm-hmm. Now the challenge is, so we, we've we felt that in sort of 2011 that we had seen what was happening in is sort of the collapse of the cost curve in natural gas as a result of shale, and then you know same thing was happening in oil, and of course that was bleeding into the costs of all other commodities, and that's kind of how these cycles wind up breaking. So you might remember people were saying, oh, the you know 2000s, it was the super cycle, the China super cycle, right for commodities. And um, it seemed like that was going to last forever, but it didn't. You know, these cycles usually tend to last maybe 15 years or so on average. So we've entered into this phase where there's been a lot of productivity. The cost curves have fallen. We think that continues to occur. So I think the question being, in, in the context of that backdrop, how likely is it that we're going to have inflation as an upside surprise? And it's, it, it's kind of hard Hard for me to see, like, without commodities participating in a meaningful way. I mean, obviously, like, just the last few months, you've seen energy and material stocks have done really well because, you know, let's face it, oil demand was down 30% on a year-on-year basis, which has never happened in the history of the data that we have, which goes back to the 1800s. So clearly, you were going to have, like, a reset back to normal. So you got this sort of reflation trade that often lasts over maybe several months, couple of quarters. Mm-hmm. However, you know that then you kind of reset to the longer term um, cycle and what's going on. So I think the question is: is inf- is inflation likely to persist without commodities really being a big part of it? Maybe right. Like there has been a lot of stimulus, and, and maybe if we start getting wage growth and stuff like that, um, inflation could be more of a problem. But you know, you, you may you're probably not likely to get the same. Uh, you know, super inflation environment like what we saw in the 1970s without commodities participating. Yeah, and I agree. And it, it depends on, in terms of the way that I look at it is we'll probably see a, a period of inflation as we have a second round of stimulus and people, the the savings rate has been tied. There's a lot of cash on the sidelines and they're gonna, there's going to be even more, but that'll eventually fizzle out. The U.S. government can't afford to have higher rates. They, you know, if inflation comes into play, we have to increase rates. Well, we have so much debt 
They don't want that to happen. So they're targeting 2% inflation. So I don't think it's going to be runaway inflation, but maybe a little bit. And you, you talked about, you know, I like rotating into stuff that has had a tough time. It's time will come. And then we have all of this infrastructure stuff. So is, is the, the push then for commodities more based on let's build some bridges and more roads? And, and I mean, there's this whole thing about bringing semiconductor uh, production back into the U.S., right? And, and not having mm-hmm. these things produced overseas. Any thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, I think that um, there's certainly some legs to that. And I think particularly because that also feeds into uh, the effort to produce more renewable energy um, in the U.S. So there's there's definitely like an infrastructure build that's naturally occurring just because our power generation infrastructure in the U.S. and in many parts of the country is, you know, at least 30 or 40 years old. So there's kind of a refresh that needs to be done. But then you Wait, recognize... Did Texas this, prove that this, through this last <laughs> storm? Oh my gosh, what a mess. Yeah, that's been really difficult. I feel bad for our, our friends in Texas, that's for mm. sure. Um, you know, but I think you you also can see how the trends are changing where there's been a lot of technological improvements that have allowed for solar and, and wind power to be produced at much lower costs. You know, there's utility companies that we own that are able to bring on a, a new solar or new wind, you know, f- power facility that's uh, at least as economical as what they could do of building a new natural gas fired power plant, which is saying something given how cheap natural gas prices are. So I think you're right that there is... Um, there is kind of a a regeneration, if you will, of, of infrastructure, particularly in power generation, but you know, also in, in other areas, roads, bridges, et cetera, uh, that, that has some legs to it. I think the challenge just being that with the you know, availability of commodities at, at lower and lower prices, you know, you, you probably don't get that inflation benefit without, you know, going through a period where productivity starts to fall, the cost curves start to rise again. And then, you know, that's when you start having a more serious inflation risk, you know, where commodities are participating. So you guys don't see a serious inflation risk coming down? We don't. Obviously, like, I'm I'm speaking from the context of, like, one team, but I do think yeah. that our, our multi-asset group, which actually kind of looks across equities and fixed income, et cetera, you know, I think they're they're viewing maybe a little bit more of an uptick in, in inflation, but you know I think you've framed it pretty well that maybe we do get some more inflation, but it, it may not be runaway inflation. Yeah, our investment team at EP Wealth looked at some ideas, and it because it, people were asking about tips, Treasury inflation protected bonds essentially, and if rates are coming down when there's inflation, those tend to do well, but if if rates are going up and there's inflation, they tend to not do yeah. that great, and commodities tend to be a better hedge against inflation, then you have the infrastructure stuff going on and it, it, it kind of, okay, yeah, commodities look somewhat attractive to have, have as an alternative piece in the portfolio. Um, so I assume gold is part of the natural resource portfolio. Do you ever see, yes. or maybe you've already added cryptocurrency of any kind mm. in that portfolio? No. <laughs> no. no, just, uh, you know, sort of gold. We haven't gone the, the cryptocurrency route. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's tricky, so I'll leave that for um, you know the experts on cryptocurrencies. But um, as far as gold goes, you know that's interesting too because there's always a lot of mystery around gold. You know, you have sort of gold bugs that uh, you know the natural time that gold does well is you know the, the really deflationary environments when it feels like the world's coming to an end, or you know the really inflationary environments where people lose faith in um, sort of the value of paper currency and gold is a reasonable 
sort of store of value that tends to do well in those those periods too. Uh, the well, that's a big question, right? Will cryptocurrency replace gold? Is that yeah. idea that has not worked in the last twenty years for any of those scenarios? It seems right. I guess we'll see. You know, I think there's there's just it's hard to you know handicap the risk of you know sort of just cyber issues there. You know how yeah. how are these going to be manipulated? I mean, we know that there's players that are trying to manipulate these currencies in the space and oh it's some of the biggest pump yeah. and dump schemes i've seen on social media is they get everybody to buy and then they and yeah, then they sell out. now it's here to stay we've got blockchain technology are you seeing a lot of blockchain mm-hmm. technology companies show up in the small cap and mid cap growth areas not not as much i mean there there are definitely companies that come out but um we, we haven't seen it as much that looks of interest to us in in those spaces yeah gotcha Gotcha. Okay. Well, I've kept you way longer than I thought. This has been great. It's been very fun to talk to you. Um, so thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Is there anything else that you're excited about or you wanted to hit on as you uh, uh, came into my freeform ADD style of... of uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was very enjoyable. And, and obviously, we appreciated being able to spend the time with you all. Um, you know, I, I think that maybe the final thing that I would say, which you know, hopefully it will be a, a reasonable theme as we think about 2021 and beyond is just recognizing the the spread that exists, you know, between sort of higher quality companies relative to lower quality companies. You could think of it as like a quality sort of like a rubber band. And it, it seems like that rubber band has been stretched really hard, you know, kind of like what we saw during the, the lead up to the internet bubble in, in 1999 into early 2000. And and we know that that can snap, you know, pretty violently. So uh, we're we're pretty excited about you know owning really good quality companies that have sort of durable growth over time. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I think that. there's a lot of those stocks are very attractively priced. So the way that kind of explain it, because we've always been agnostic in terms of we buy some individual stocks, some ETFs, and some actively mm-hmm. managed funds, and a lot more actively managed lately, just because of where the market is. I mean, if the market has a major correction, you can buy indexes and, and be fine. Um, but like you said, there's a, there's a spread between high quality companies or rather even speculation yeah. versus fairly or fully valued right now. With that said, I've seen T. Rowe Price come out with some of the first actively managed ETFs, mm-hmm. which are a better way to invest in a basket because it's a better tax structure, right? So do you see your funds, the, any of the, any more of the specific uh, mid-cap and small-cap growth mutual funds come out as actively managed ETFs? Is there anything that you could tell us about on that front? Yeah, so we have not done anything in the small and mid-cap space. Um, I, I think in part, it's, we do have you know, a fairly sizable platform in, in small and mid-cap land. So across many of the strategies, we've, we've been closed for a while to, to new investors, with some exceptions. But I think that's also probably dampened um, yeah, our ability to kind of come out with small and make up ETFs. But I guess stay tuned. There's nothing on the immediate horizon there, but um, you know some good options in in large cap space. And I think we'll you know we'll continue to evaluate that in the in a sector format as well too. All right, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Again, uh, we've been speaking with Brian Dow. She is with T Row Price on the mid cap, small cap growth areas and, and a healthcare specialist. So Brian, thanks a lot for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. We appreciate the time. All right. Thank you. 